Hi everyone, welcome back to my uh, weekly podcast about drumming, kind of musings and some thoughts, ideas, some general kind of uh, drum chit-chat. Um, so this is kind of uh, my second or third since New Year. Um, it was nice to kind of feel like back in the swing of things a little bit. Um, it's been an interesting week, or interesting couple of weeks. So um, anybody that um, people I know on maybe on Instagram, um, that's where I post most stuff. Uh, I posted a just posted a story about drums, more drums. I've just bought some more drums, basically. I've been going through a little bit of a kind of period of um, yeah, being interested in drums again. I don't mean playing the drums and, and music and stuff. I mean actually physically drums, like the actual the instrument of the drum. Because um, I tend to go through I go through different periods of um, of kind of being interested in different things. Anybody knows me reasonably well knows about my kind of interesting cars and my um, my basic kind of philosophy if I could get away with it I would own between six and 15 cars at any one time and um, some of them would be keepers because they'd be quite strange interesting vehicles that would just be interesting because of the way they went about their business and then some of the others would be, they'd be I'd be fickle with them. They, you know, I'd I'd buy them in a kind of euphoric state of this is the greatest thing ever, and within six weeks, two months, I'd be thinking, right, something else is more interesting than this now. And uh, and the kind of last 50, 10, 15 years, it's been pretty much like that for me. Um, and it's never really been like that with drums. It's been an interesting thing. I, I kind of. Um, I've been sort of long-termer with kits, you know, um, until this last two or three years. Um, so a couple of years ago, I bought an old sonar kit from um, a guy called Joe Cox, who's a great uh, he's a drum restorer. He's got his, his own business. He's also a brilliant drum tech. But actually, Joe is um, he's a very, very good drummer as well. Uh, he was somebody that I spent a bit of time with at college. I taught him a little bit, and uh, he was very good at lots of different things. Um, but when he left college, he got into this sort of drum restoring thing, and I bought a really nice old Sonor Chicago-style kit of him from the late 60s that he'd hand-restored. Now, there was a coincidence with this story. It's quite a funny story because many years ago, uh, I bought some drums off a... An old friend of mine, John Andrews, who used to work at Johnny Roadhouse Music in Manchester. John worked there for a long time, 20, 21 years or something. Hello to John if you are listening, which is unlikely. Um, but I might, I might mention to him today that I've mentioned him in this podcast. He might, he might have a listen. Uh, but I bought some drums off John a long time. I've bought lots of drums off John. I bought lots of drums off John personally and through the shop over the years. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I've mentioned 
the hilarity of going in that shop over the years. Him and Lee Mullen together was a was an incredible double act, particularly on a Saturday. I used to teach down there on a Saturday, and I always used to sort of turn up bleary-eyed. I was always a terrible sleeper, and I'd always been gigging, and I'd sort of rock up five minutes before the first student. And it was very unprofessional, and they'd always be absolutely ripping into me immediately. And uh, some hilarious, hilarious stories of some... Um, some really interesting people that I taught down there and just just funny, funny stories uh, with those two guys. There's always stuff going on in the shop. Um, but I, but John also got lots of amazing drums. Uh, he's got a sonar kit, which he knows what it is, and uh, it's an ex-kit from a very famous British, well, Manchester band. I'm not going to mention who they are or anything, but John owns an extremely lovely drum kit, which... Um, there's probably about 40 of us that are after that drum kit, um, and he'll never sell it. I know he won't. But uh, I bought some other drums off John a few years ago. I bought his lovely Gary Noonan bass drum, 24-inch, which I use for lots of different things. It's a great bass drum for recording. It's great for like big gigs and big rooms. There's something about a 24 bass drum, and it's only by 16, so it's shallow size. It's, it's like a perfect bass drum, and it records and plays really well. Because the hard thing about... You know, if you get these very deep bass drums, it's quite a trendy thing at the moment. You see these DW20 by 20 bass drums. It's like, you know, unless you're going to hit that thing hard and it's got two heads on it, it's just going to feel like a nightmare to play. I, I, I can't play deep bass drums, you know. I find, actually, toms a little bit challenging as well. I tend to tune floor toms quite low because I the sort of slap back from the other head kind of does my head in a bit. You know, it's why I like shallow sizes. I like shallow toms and I like shallow bass drums. Uh, anyway, I, I'm not digressing. There's a there's a whole circle to this story which will become apparent. So, um, I bought these drums off John years ago. Anyway, the the toms, the, the, the rap was in a really bad state. There were 1961 Carlton, British-made Carlton toms, 13 and 16. They weren't very good drums. Uh, I bought three drums off John because I wanted the bass drum. The, the toms were pretty rubbish. And I used the toms on a couple of tours and they didn't tune great. They were not great. The floor tom was all right. It was quite loud. Uh, but the 13 was not... It's not. I'm looking at it now. It's not a great drum. It's, it's all right, but it's not anything special. Um, I'm going to sell them. Uh, I took the wrap off anyway and underneath was glue from, you know, 1961 and some filler and various other things. And I set about trying to get this glue off the shell and it was horrific. And I quickly gave up. I was contacting all manner of drum restorers in the north of England asking for their advice and they were just talking about some hideous chemicals that were going to basically take me out of the game and anybody within a 10-mile radius to get this stuff off the shelves, you know. So I was like, nah, this is not going to happen. Uh, this is definitely, definitely, definitely not a job for me. So I kind of gave up on it. And anyway, coincidentally, Joe had this kit for sale, his Sona Chicago style, and it was a natural wood kit. And so I saw this thing on, uh, actually on Instagram, because he advertises a lot through Instagram. And I tend to look at that and ADC Drums in Liverpool and different places uh, who advertise some really great stuff. And... Uh, yeah, it it I was thinking, you know, what what how was this kit kind of made? You know, it's, it was a natural wood. It was looked really beautiful. So I contacted Joe. It turned out that he hand restored it. So he went through all of the stuff I did, but he actually did it. 
And I think I think a hundred a hundred hours must have gone into that. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Anyway, I loved the kit. I went to play it. I bought it. And uh and it's been lovely, it's a lovely instrument. I'm about to sell it though. Um it is with regret. The bass drum is amazing. The bass drum is sound this is gonna sound strange, but the bass drum just sounds like a bass drum. It doesn't sound like a brand. Um now, some of you might think that just sounds like a weird statement, but some of you might know what I mean by that. I've got a Yamaha um, Maple Absolute Nouveau. It's a lovely kit. It's just an 18 bass drum. 12 tom, 14 floor tom. I use that on a lot of pretty much all the gigs I'm doing at the moment, if you've seen anything I've posted in the last year or so. Since I sold my Premier Gen X, I've been pretty much using... The Sonor for some stuff, but mainly since I've got the Yamaha, I've just been playing the Yamaha. One reason why is the hardware is modern. So, you know, the, the Sonor is a 1968-ish kit with 1968-ish hardware. Uh, the Tom Stem's fine. The bass drum legs are actually remarkably stable and the bass drum doesn't move. The floor Tom legs and the, the sort of the tight the, the thing that tightens the legs up on yeah, it's a little bit of a faff. They're they're a bit it's just the way they're engineered and obviously over the years the metal has started to, just metal just play gets into stuff as you know anything that's metal and engineered and, and is constantly being tightened up and, and untightened and moved around and is having kind of you know any sort of structural whatever put against it is going to you know over the years is going to become problematic and and one of the bass drum uh, sorry one of the floor tom legs particularly is is problematic. It's only problematic to actually take it out. When I'm packing gear away at the end of the night, I want to be... My kit's down between five and seven minutes. My my kit is down, you know. And uh, if I'm really in a hurry, I can, I can get it in the cases in five minutes. Everything, all the hardware. And it takes nearly five minutes to get that floor tom leg out. It's just like, you know, it takes as long to do that as it does to put the rest of the kit away. So I've got kind of a bit fed up with it. So I've got this Yamaha... Now, the thing about the Yamaha, and anyone who's played Yamaha knows, the bass drum sounds like a Yamaha bass drum. It sounds great, but it sounds like a Yamaha bass drum. A Sonor bass drum, you know, like a modern one, and I'll talk about, I've just bought some Sonor, so the bass drums I've just bought definitely do sound like phonics. They sound exactly that kind of thing. But this Chicago Star kit, this old bass drum, it sounds like nothing, just sounds like a bass drum. It sounds amazing, it's beautiful, it's got amazing character. It sounds very different with different velocities and different beaters, but it's just that thing of like, when you hit it really hard, it's just got a great vibe about it when you when you really lay into it. Uh, it's never obnoxious. It's always musical, it's kind of warm sounding. So the drum, but the drum kit has to go because of room. You know, this is one of the things us drummers, you know, we have to consider. I, I know some some friends of mine who've got um, lots and lots of drums, and I don't I don't know how they um, they kind of live with this thing of storing drums. You know, uh, and then there's some quite famous British drummers who've who've got incredible collections of drums, like literally, you know, small warehouses that they rent out that have hundreds of kits in them you know that but they collect over the years from touring and from getting endorsements and buying things up when they're on the road and all that kind of stuff um 
a good friend of mine, uh, Luke Flowers, a great Manchester drummer. He's, you know, he bought all these Canopus drums. They're beautiful drums. They sound amazing, but he's he like really nailed it. He bought, he had this opportunity to, when he was on tour a few years ago to kind of order like all the bass drums. So he's got like a 15, I think he's got 16, 18, 20, 22, maybe even a 24. But it's just that thing of having all the options, you know. Anyway, so a couple of weeks ago, this kit turned up on eBay and uh, it had 18, 20, 22 bass drums. Different, really interesting sizes, sizes that had been um, modified by a, a proper drum restorer. So that, you know, they were unusual sizes that were very, very hard to um, to find. And the story is, um, I've just bought them. I won't mention who I bought them off, but uh, he, um, it's one of those things where you meet somebody who has basically created the kit that you always wanted. And this is exactly what I've just taken sort of ownership of today. I've got a bit of work to do from it. Um, and getting some new heads on it and bits and bobs and sorting out the kind of hardware. But I've got a gig Sunday and I'm going to use the the kind of jazz setup. So it's got great options. It's got an 18 by 14 bass drum, 20 by 14 and a 22 by 12 bass drum, which is a great size. I did some recording in the summer um, down in a, a, a really nice studio called Studio WZ down in um, Pembrokeshire in South Wales. Um, big shout out to Wayne, um, who's a great engineer and a really knowledgeable guy uh, about, I mean, about all kinds of stuff. This guy's bright, but drums, he knows He knows about drums. And he's not, he's not a drummer, but he knows about drums because it's just that thing of like, you know, if you're someone that listens to music seriously and you're recording seriously and you're trying to capture sound and then you've got like a history of listening to music from vinyl, you know, uh, not from MP3s, not from CDs, but actually, then it really shows, you know. So the thing about uh, the connection here is when I was down there, I was really lucky enough to... Um, to use some of his drums, um, I basically got tipped off and it was like, you know, he's got some amazing drums. Uh, I was recording with just said, and I had a chat with him before and it turned out he really did have some very interesting drums. So I went down, I just took a couple of snare drums, my cymbals and a load of sticks and stuff. And I just caught, you know, I'll go and, go and play this guy's drums um, and played some amazing drums. But there's some really interesting bass drum kind of sizes that he had. And one of them was this, uh, it was a 22 by 12. I think it was a Slingerland. I don't know. He'll correct me, actually. I'm not totally sure. But it was like we were recording. We did quite a lot of... It was there for a week. We did quite a lot of tracking. And um, we were using various different bass drums. They had some really interesting bass drums. But, yeah, I really like this 22 by 12. Anyway, so this kit came, has come up for sale. And it was like, oh, right, okay, this is really interesting. So I went around to have a look at it. Went around to have a look at it again. Um, a little bit of uh, backwards and forwards, but it uh, needed some new uh, tension lugs and stuff. But yeah, so I got it today and brought it home. And it's been a really interesting kind of journey because when I bought the Chicago style, I thought when I, when I played it and the bass drum particularly, I thought this is the this is the kit. This is this is all I need. I've, you know, and it sort of quickly turned out to not quite be the case. Um, 
not only because of the floor tom leg thing, but I actually am not a massive fan of 13 and 16 floor toms for everything. Uh, there are size that I use on certain gigs and there are size that I like to use in certain music, but I really, really like a 12 and a 14. So, so this uh, Yamaha came up for sale um, last year, ex-student of mine, Andy Bulletin, um, who uh, wasn't using it and we had a sort of chat about it. I borrowed it for a bit, had it, sorted it out. And it's been a great, and it's a really nice kit. So I'm, that that kit's staying with me because it's it's a really good. Um, it's just got a it's got a certain kind of sound, and it's really useful for certain kind of things. But now I've got about I've basically ended up with six drum kits. Now it's like a bit of a nightmare. And I'm a person that I I had I used to have about fourteen snare drums years ago, and I got rid of a lot of them. I ended up with two. I had my Craviotto Custom Shop, which I use for pretty much everything, and my Black Beauty 6.5, 14x6.5 Black Beauty, which is an anniversary drum, 2009 anniversary drum, which I bought the die-cast hoops for, the original die-cast hoops um, from the 80s. They were still wrapped, actually, in the original, but they are proper 80s die-cast hoops. So that, and that's a phenomenal snare drum. Um, and then I didn't need anything else, and then, uh, this snare came up for sale through John, this Sonor snare, which I got, it's a steel snare, it's very, very nice. It's a bit of a kind of Frankenstein's monster snare, it's had some, John went to the Sonor factory in Germany and replaced quite a lot of the lugs on it, because it was sort of cheap lugs, really good shell, cheap lugs, and it's got a Tama strainer, very strange, which is like the DW strainer, the one that moves sideways, very nice, so it's a weird snare drum. I got it very cheap. It's not worth a lot of money because it because it's a Frankenstein's monster snare drum, you know. Uh, and then uh, recently I bought another snare drum, um, which I reconditioned, which is probably going to go. But it's a brass one. It's a nice pearl one, really nice, quite vintage uh, looking. It's not vintage. It's quite a modern snare drum, but it's got a vintage look to it. So, and then I've just bought some more cymbals as well. So I'm just kind of like going through a bit of a period of of uh, a bit of a change, but it'll all work itself out in the end. I'll end up, um, you know, with the, I'll end up probably keeping the Noonan, I'll keep the Noonan bass drum for sure, because that's like a stayer. Um, the Sonor Chicago Stars will go. They're going to be for sale this weekend. Uh, the snap that snare may go, the pearl brass snare may go, and uh, everything else will just be in the way, probably. So, but yeah, sorting out all these bass drums, it's like when you've got a 22, 20, and 18 bass drum in cases, and a 16, 14 floor toms as well, it's like the amount of room it takes up is incredible. But, um, oh, let me turn my phone off, sorry about that, bit of a noise there. Um, so yeah, it was just, um, Today's kind of podcast was is is or is, is going to be about um, this foundations continuing this foundations series really. Uh, it's basically um, I was thinking about when I when I did the first foundations podcast and then did the second one. These things always lead on to thinking about other topics, you know. And uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about, which I've sort of alluded to in the other other podcasts, is is this kind of idea of um, of sort of how to practice 
properly. Um, but within that, kind of instilling this uh, this reference point for yourself about setting a new standard within something that you are, you know, learning. So I wanted to talk first of all a little bit about practicing properly, um, because this is a this is a subject area which is it can be quite confusing. I I went through a formal education, uh, classical percussion sort of education. I went through snare drum kind of etudes and pieces. I learned to play snare drum. Um, so I used the Charlie Wilcox and Chaz Wilcox and modern rudimental, rudimental swing solos for the advanced drummer, which has 25 rudiments and then loads of solos which are based upon those rudiments. And a lot of the a lot of the sort of information and rhythmic things in those solos are quite similar, but it was a great education for me and it was, you know, quite formal in in respect of, you know, working your way through a book. And then, you know, the progression is natural through that book, you know. And it sort of doesn't require you to really think about um, what you're actually doing with the material. And so that's one side of practising. And then I was I was studying timpani as well and, 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 and tune percussion. I was a terrible tune percussionist, but uh, I was a good timpanist. Um, I quite like timps. Timps were like playing drum kit. I like the crossover thing. I like... I remember when I was when I was kind of getting into drums, watching Buddy Rich and Blakey and people who did all these kind of fancy crossover stuff, and just doing that thing of doing triplets between two sort of drums, starting with the left to the right, you know, going left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. That kind of thing really fascinated me. I liked doing crossovers. I liked playing, you know, playing timpani parts that had that precision crossover kind of thing where you played to the same point on each timp. Uh, I played basically German technique. I didn't play French. I was a German technique. I like the three, the three finger dampening system, all that kind of stuff. If you're into that, it will resonate with you. Um, but I, it, it kind of appealed to me that whole the whole systematic thing of uh, of playing timpani. But I just didn't really enjoy actually playing timpani in the situation that timpani was required to be played in. I kind of found it a bit boring, really. I, I like some of the, you know, uh, some of the pieces of plays, like um, Firebird Suite, Stravinsky had a great timp part with hard mallets, you know. I think I remember overplaying that a bit. Um, and, uh, yeah, but a lot of the time, it, the thing about playing classical percussion, um, which I think really appeals to some people and doesn't appeal to other people, is this thing of, of you know, you're waiting... You're waiting to make statements a lot of the time, and then and then you're stepping up, and then you're really part of something quite dramatic often, and and even the even the most delicate, intimate, quiet moments are dramatic, you know, because percussion is used so I think used so effectively within that kind of writing, because um, because of the nature of the timbre of percussion and, and what it does in the music, you know, what that kind of how it connects to other instruments rhythmically and sonically and stuff is really fascinating. Um, and I, I learned a lot of great things out of studying percussion. Like I, I, I really like cymbal roles, you know. I like playing cymbal roles. I'm really into that. And I learned that through classical study, you know. I, I remember 
studying with with Irene Molin, my first teacher, and, and I used to be in the brass band with her, and she'd chuck a pair of like you know soft mallets at me, and I'd have the cymbal roll thing, and I'd play the cymbal roll, and she'd be like, "No, that's not the way you do it. You warm the cymbal, you get it moving, and then you open out the sound." And it really made me appreciate like a, a like a like a crap cymbal or a nice cymbal, and how you could like you know it's a piece of metal. <clears throat> and it's that thing of, you know, if you get it, if you get it, you get the piece of metal moving, you bring it to life. So it's alive. You know, I'm looking at a symbol now on the stand that's just sat there, this piece of metal on the stand, it's doing nothing. It's just a piece of metal. And you go over to it and as soon as you touch it or start to start to kind of move the metal and get it vibrating, it comes to life, you know. And then from that, you've got this kind of control with the sticks over um, over what you can do then with that with that momentum you know with the metal of 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 of, of sort of bringing out different kind of sounds and 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 then the and then the symbol really shows its character to you know it's good good symbols are really interesting things you know and, and uh, awful symbols are you know they're challenging to make sound good you can't make them sound good but you know we we tend to gravitate towards symbols that connect to the music that we like you know. But um, yeah, it's always a really interesting thing with uh, with symbols. And then there's the thing about I I always like my preference for symbol rolls is a medium chalkling mallet. Okay, it's not I'm not attached to any brand, but uh, the soft mallet, the chalkling soft, you've got to put too much energy in to the stick for me to make the cymbal do what you want to do. And then the hard mallet, you can hear the mallet when you when you're rolling on the cymbal. So the medium mallet, a new pair or a reasonably good new pair of chocolate mallet, medium chocolate mallets, you you just hear the cymbal. I I don't think you hear the mallet. And that's what you want for me. That's that's my preference, you know. When you're playing a you know, on a jazz gig or something playing with brushes and you want to do a little cymbal thing at the end of a piece and you want to just have that you don't want to hear dong 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 dong. You don't want to hear any kind of donginess, you know, from the from the uh, for the want of a better word, it's a terrible word. Um, you know, with the uh, with the mallet, you just want to hear the symbol, and you want to be able to go to the symbol and get it moving, and then open it out. You know, so so anyway, the classical study thing was great for all that stuff, um, but the thing that I really struggled with for a long time was understanding when I was actually practicing, you know, not even how to practice, but just when I was actually practicing. Um, because I think with, I think the problem with uh, some drummers, I don't know about other instruments, I couldn't say, but I know from other drummers that I've known and, and from drummers that I've taught and been around and stuff, is that I think if you go in a room as a drummer and you put your headphones on and put some tracks on and have a play along to some tracks and have a bit of a blast around, uh, that can be, that's great. It's a really, really nice thing to do. Uh, I had a lesson a few years ago with uh, the great John Riley and we were, we had a chat at the end of the lesson and we were talking about how we were practicing at the moment. It was quite a funny conversation. I won't go into the details of it. We were both doing a quite similar thing. It was, uh, it was quite amusing, just that sort of thing of op of trying to find opportunities to practice in situations where you don't really have the the right setup. But we both were doing quite a similar thing when we were practicing uh, in our homes, you know. But one of the things he said to me was quite profound. He said, "He said, do you play? Are you playing along with records anymore?" 
And I was like, no, I've not done that for a long, long time. I used to do it all the time. And he said, you should do it every week. You should just do it once a week. Just let, allow yourself the time to do it, you know. And um, and I did. And I, and I know why he said it now. Because there's, there's a certain joy and satisfaction to doing that. You know, it's and it links to something I was going to talk about in the intro. But I was, I was actually, as I was looking at the topic, because I make a few notes here, just because my brain—I don't remember. I can't remember all this stuff that I'm supposed to be talking about. I have a few prompts, but one of the things I'd written down here was this thing about um, when I used to gig a lot, which was before 2012. I used to do a lot of gigs, uh, and. The mid noughties, 2005, that, that kind of period I was doing, playing a lot. Um, yeah, like rid ridiculous amounts, really. It was like a bit of a burnout period for me. It was not, it was not a great period uh, spiritually, shall we say. But in relation to sort of nervous system and being able to, being on it and having that kind of responsiveness because you're just in it all the time. I was really on it. And the thing that I've really noticed since 2012, since gigging less and, and, and doing kind of playing more high quality music in more high quality situations. Um, and what I mean by that is just, you know, I, I needed to spend some time away from playing um, kind of function music, you know, functional music, uh, playing in function bands and things like that. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I got this nice job. Well, I've been teaching, I've had a nice teaching job since 2006 at a great institution in the UK in Leeds. And um, But in 2012, I ended up um, getting this full-time job there. I, I, you know, I ended up becoming a full-time academic and uh, managing people and all that kind of stuff. And uh, there was a certain kind of salary that's attached to that. You know, it's a, it's a position, so to speak. And... Uh, and I was already a principal lecturer and stuff. So, you know, in my part-time kind of role, I already had that. But then I was suddenly had this other responsibility and I was looking at, you know, helping with curriculum development and uh, doing all kinds of other things. Some stuff is really interesting and some stuff that's you know, maybe a little bit more boring. Um, but what it meant was I needed to, I needed to you know, to, to sort of manage my time better for my personal life and my working life. And one of the things that stopped was playing kind of gigs that were just not artistic gigs that were gigs that were for other means if you know if you like and uh and so I kind of pulled the plug on all that stuff and and then you know the inevitable happens is, is the less that you gig people don't ring you <clears throat> because they think that you no longer gig it's just the nature of this business you know if you're a young drummer at the moment listening to this podcast and you're thinking about your future in in the business one of the things I would say is being around, being seen, um, just being busy makes you busy. If you're good, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, you don't have to be amazing. You just got to be good. You got to play nice time, nice sound, good styles. You know, have a vibe, have a good attitude, be nice to people, be easy to be around, make people you know feel like you're a problem solver, not a problem creator. You know. All that kind of stuff, just having that kind of attitude, and um, and turning up on time, all the kind of usual cliche stuff. You know, I, I learned the hard way with that. I was I, I went through a sort of 
unreliable period in the late 90s, early noughties. And I kind of learned from that. I got my stuff together. By the 2002, 2003, I was really, I was always early. I was super pro, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, always wearing the right thing, blah, 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 for the situation, you know. Um, that's great. But when you retreat from that world, people think that you don't play anymore. You know, they, they assume that you are doing something else, you know. And, and I suppose I was, and I, st and I still am now. Um, but the thing with that is it, is it sort of, it, it, your nervous system is really in it's really in the kind of uh it's in that kind of i don't know kind of that uh in that frame of of being ready all the time because basically you know what you're doing is you're playing all the time and the thing about playing along to records which was what uh mr Riley had said to me was just that thing of like, i used to do a lot of that and i used to think i was practicing and i wasn't practicing I was reinforcing things that I could already do. Now, some people say, well, that is practicing. And I'd say, well, no, I don't think it is. I think it's just, it's practicing. What I learned as I got older, practicing is about isolating something that you can't do, finding a good exercise or the right exercise that efficiently gets you to solve that problem and therefore be able to do that thing that you can't do and there's a number of things a number of factors in that which are really important to um, one is to maybe have somebody that you go and see and, and talk to about that you know a tutor a mentor or whatever somebody that you know has a lot of experience and as has you know that you know can find help you find solutions to problems with that kind of thing that's one thing that i am good at when i'm teaching uh, students that I've had I think would say that um, that I am pretty good problem solver or certainly it's that thing of enabling uh, giving somebody a way of thinking about a, a problem or giving somebody a way of thinking about it in two or three different ways that might be the and finding the best way for themselves to practice that thing because I think you can practice you know certain especially coordinational exercises you can you can have different ways of thinking about practicing them and 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 they work with diff the way that people's different personalities work you know so um but yeah i'm not, not going to go too much into that now but uh but the one of the fundamentals of this is is when you're you take the you take the task on of okay i'm going to learn this new thing okay and a lot of the thing that I teach at college, because of like the um, the sort of journey to that point of um, of students that I I end up teaching, uh, is is this idea of uh, a lot of them are in transition. They're in transition from um, various styles of music, and they're transitioning into wanting to play essentially small group contemporary swing jazz music and they are listening to uh, a whole bunch of drummers that are um, 
that kind of occupy a kind of certain sort of sound world, you know. And and a lot of those drummers are influenced by the greats, as we call them, you know. <clears throat> and so there's a lot of information there that's quite easy to, to find, you know. It's quite easy to to get some information about, you know, if I'm into Jeff Tame Watts, for instance, then it's quite easy to find players that he's influenced by, who he wanted to sound like, and who's who he's influenced, and listen to them and, and, and hear that kind of lineage, you know. Um, but within this kind of learning, <clears throat> one has to find... Uh, exercises or ways to practice that are going to get you uh, on the way to that to sounding in like that you know you 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 know I sound like this I like the way that person sounds I want to sound like that by just simply trying to sound like them is probably not going to be the most efficient way of doing it you know it's probably going to take you a long time but understanding how they do what they do or maybe understanding how they studied or maybe understanding who they were into or maybe understanding you know uh, a combination of all those things is going to kind of set you up with a, a kind of approach to practicing and uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I teach a lot is this kind of two this this sort of two dynamic system within playing swing drums and it's essentially not to go into too much sort of nerdy detail about it but it's like the thing of this the ride cymbal and the hi-hat have a certain dynamic that is um connected to each other in relation to the balance of sound and the snare drum and the bass drum have a certain dynamic which is connected to them within the balance of sound and depending on how you're playing your swing sort of swing beat um some people play drop skip some people play with quarter note arm motion some people play with a heavy skip beat kind of an elviny thing those three techniques have two dynamics within them so you've got this thing of um, well, I've got a stick here. So I've just got a stick and a practice pad. If you've got crotchets like that, if I'm playing this, so that's playing with drop skip, and on a ride cymbal, this is these crotchets quarter notes are even, and the skip beat that that light stroke you hear in between should be the same dynamic as the comping patterns that you're practicing your on the snare drum. I was going to say with left hand, but if you if you're left-handed, it'd be with the right hand. But so I'm sort of referring to things by instrument, not by hand here. I, I do tend to be quite right-handist, I'm afraid, because I'm right-handed. Um but all the left-handed drummers I've got a couple this year at college, they you know they're very generous and they they're used to working it out. But I do try and refer to things by what's going on in the kit. So you've got this kind of sound on the ride symbol. Um, which is that drop skip thing. You can also play, which is a quarter note arm motion sound, where two, three, four, one, and basically the two and the four is a bit louder, and the, the, the beats one and three is slightly, slightly quieter. 
Uh, and that's because the quarter note arm motion. As the arm comes in, the elbow drops in for beats two and four, you've got more weight and you've got a lighter arm on beats one and three. It's all quite nerdy kind of physics stuff. And the other one is... Is that heavy skip beat thing with the light crotchets. Ting, ting, ga, ting, ting, ga. I'm kind of exaggerating it to, to make the point. But the thing there is, again, the, the, the crotchets on the cymbal will be dynamically closer to what the comping sound is on the snare and in the bass drum, the feathered sound in the bass drum. Uh, because that's the thing that accompanies all this. In a fundamental sense, when you're sort of getting into this style of playing, the fundamental model is, is, a, is what I call a left-hand coordination chart. It's a series of different triplet crotchet patterns, triplet, you know, eighth notes, um, that you essentially play with a ting, ting to ting, a jazz ride pattern, one, two, and two-hand swing pattern, you know. Um, the hi-hat plays on two and four of the bar, and the bass drum plays on all four beats of the bar at the same dynamic as, as the left-hand comps. So, so in this model, when, when I'm teaching this, the idea is that the student firstly understands what they're doing. So they, you know, it's that thing of, do you understand that there are two dynamics here? Hopefully the answer is yes, because they've been listening and they're alive and awake and aware. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you know, people sometimes are confused and that's fine. But once, once the exercise is understood, then there's the thing of, and I say this all the time, are you going to remember? You understand, so therefore it follows that you should remember, you know. And it's really important, that thing. If, if you understand and remember... I think you're onto a winning combination there. You know, if you if you're if you're studying with somebody or you're sort of gleaning information off YouTube or whatever, if you understand it correctly and you can remember that and then come to the instrument and work alone, then you're going to do all right. I think uh, a lot of the time, I've I've taught people in the past who've misunderstood something that I've asked them to practice for whatever reason. Could be my fault. It's normally theirs, but it, it has been mine on occasion. It's normally they've not listened properly or they've, they've brought something else in when they practice. There's, there's a whole different lot of reasons. And anyway, they go away and practice this thing. And what happens, they come back the next week, they work quite hard on it, and they get better at being rubbish at it or worse at it or wrong at it. Get better at being more wrong. Because it's just that thing, if you put more time into something, you'll get better at whatever it is you do. And if it's you're practicing something incorrectly, you'll get better at being incorrect, you know. That process in itself, if you're learning how to practice, can be a really valuable lesson. It may feel at the time utterly despairing and annoying and you'd be angry and whatever, but actually it's something you'll never do again. And it may be, you know, that one time of doing that, just, you know, one week of doing it. Uh, if you're checking in with somebody regularly, this is why it's kind of good, I think, to, to check in with somebody, you know, to have somebody that you go to and you have a good relationship with and you trust the way they're teaching and you trust what they're saying to you and all that kind of stuff because you can check in. And checking in is the most important thing. My, my, my thing we teach in is I have a simple philosophy of this thing of do you understand, do you remember, let's check in. Because the checking in thing... Uh, the student does the work, you know, that's the bottom line of it. 
when when we go into like thinking about what happens in in this process of teaching or mentoring somebody the bottom line is regardless of who you teach and how you teach them they got they've got to do the work you're not doing the work you're just trying to make their path a little bit straighter and trying to not make them wander from side to side as they walk down this kind of road of discovery you know the path you're trying to make the path as straight as possible for them but they're the one that's walking the path and they're the one that's doing the work you're the one that's you know you're just at checkpoints along that path hey how you doing nice to see you today how have you been getting on with this yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i've been doing this and it's like, oh, it sounds great a little bit of reassurance just have a little bit of a think about this there's always tweaks i'm still tweaking things out dave hassel taught me when i was 17 i'm still tweaking them you know um some of that's because i don't have enough time to, to practice all the time some of it's because I just know more about it, you know. And I've been 49 years of age now, you know. I've been sort of doing it for a long time, you know. I've been at this kind of thing for a number of years and I was lucky to spend a bit of time with him and get some really good information because that was the thing, you know, Dave, that what Dave taught me then when I was 17 was just the value of going to somebody that has good information. It's not going to tell you a, crop of, a crock of crap, you know. Because that's the problem with some teaching these days is a lot of it's kind of based upon uh, materials that are what I call third-hand materials, as in they're not they're not materials from the teacher, they're materials from somewhere else, and so you're not getting the personality of the teacher. I don't think in 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 a lot of that um, teaching, but some of it you know it doesn't need it doesn't it doesn't require that. But I think if you're like a lot of the people I teach, they they want to be sort of free thinking improvising and jazz kind of musicians they may be you know they get into the pop world and the rock world and stuff but they want to have that kind of philosophy at the center of what they do so it's kind of important i think for them to have this way of practicing <clears throat> now within that when when a student goes away and practices comes back goes away again and practices then comes back after two or three weeks if they're doing it correctly working methodically what they start to hear is a certain standard of playing like a i call it the the barometer which you do not want to go below at any time not when you're practicing not when you're playing and the second thing can be a bit tougher because i do tell all my students when they play just go and play and enjoy yourself just don't think about any of the stuff that you practice you know it's really really important it's hard to do I don't think I wasn't successful at that for years and sometimes I'm not now sometimes I'm playing and I'll think about something I was practicing just in the middle of something and I'll be like no 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 I'm doing you know I'm practicing quite a lot of at the moment dotted uh, sorry crotchet triplet bass drum patterns on and off the beat uh, and also off off uh, semi quavered triplets as well uh, some quite strange things but um I was playing on Tuesday and I just had a moment when my brain engaged in the middle. I was playing this swing tune and it was a slightly bright tempo, not a tempo where I would normally try and play crotchet triplets, offbeat crotchet triplets in the bass drum. <laughs> it's something I would shy away from that. But I had a moment where I nearly did it, nearly played them because I was thinking about I'd been practicing them. And so it is hard to to not do that thing, you know. Uh, but I've I've definitely got better at it over the years. Uh, most of it's because I've got better at listening, uh, and I and I tend to, I tend to kind of play with, 
you know, I play with good bass players, very good bass players, and so I have this kind of thing of being able to focus on the bass, just listen to the bass and play with the bass, and it really takes a lot of stuff out of um, out of the equation. And also, I have this thing where I I think about how I'm doing what I'm doing, what you know, where I'm playing from in the hand and the feet, not what I'm playing, the con not the content of it, but just where I'm playing from, and that tends to take that thing out of my um, kind of egoy thing actually um, takes that out of it because it's just about kind of how am I connecting with the instrument this is one of the notes I had here about this whole thing but this fundamental in the lessons the thing that, the, the, when I'm teaching people the thing that I've really noticed that really I think has quite a you know deep and profound long-lasting effect upon students when they're they're trying to get these kind of foundations into their playing, these kind of these this kind of way of approaching practice, of having a, a kind of work ethic that's of their own, you know, of of their own making, and is of their own understanding. Is when they hear in the lesson when they hear that something sounds good, you know, it, it sounds close to that sound that they're trying to attain they have this moment where it's like that sounds mega uh, and i always say if i if i share that moment with anybody that i'm teaching because uh, a lot of them have it when when they're practicing at home and they come in and tell me about it you know but sometimes i, I do see it happen in the room you know quite a few people i've had that experience with i feel very blessed actually to have that kind of experience you know because it's very much from them it's not from me at all it's, it's from them they've created that sound they've created that control and that way of interfacing with the instrument but i always say to them you've set your standard now you've set the standard that is the standard if you don't play when you're practicing if you're not practicing and playing at that level then you're not playing at the standard that you have set for yourself you know and uh it's been a really really valuable thing that so it's maybe something that you can think about because it's connected to all sorts of stuff, how we connect to the instrument, you know, that thing of connect. So connecting to the instrument is, you know, that thing of physically. The drums is a big landscape. I talk about this all the time, you know. The kind of classic set four-piece setup with, you know, ride cymbal and two crashes. If you're playing rock, high high cymbal, you're playing jazz, maybe lower cymbals, whatever, you know. Small drums, big drums, you know. There's, there's a physicality of the way we connect to the instrument, isn't there? You know, we're playing, we're using our hands to use these pieces of wood to hit surfaces. It's kind of a bit mental, really, if you think about it. You know, and even with these, like, um, brushes that I've got here, you know, this is, like I was talking about in the Brushes podcast, this, this sort of connection to the snare drum or the instrument is, is both vertical and it's lateral. You know, so it's a beautiful thing. It's like that. That that's why the uh, I was saying before. That's why the brushes is such a nice thing because you've got this kind of connection that's that's got another dimension to it than sticks. You know, um, and and then all the kind of hot rods and whatever's that are in between have all their own kind of you know uh, their own kind of connection to the instrument. But it's that thing of yeah, how I connect to the instrument, how I'm doing what I'm doing. He's a brilliant drummer called Michael Calvin. He's a older drummer now, you know, probably, probably don't know, he's 70s, 80s, I'm not sure. 
um, played with um, you know, Freddie Hubbard and Milgram Miller and all sorts of people. He's an amazing drummer and uh, great soloist. Very interesting character. But this, there's a couple of there's a workshop on YouTube. It's really worth watching if you can find it. And it's just I don't know where it is. it's in like a like a room and there's not many people there. <clears throat> but there's a guy that he gets up and he he talks to him about how he how he is at the instrument physically, you know, about the height of things. And he talks him through, like, why the cymbal should be this high, why the snare should be this high, and all these kind of things. I'm not going to tell you about the detail, but watch it yourself. It's quite funny, some of it. It says some quite funny things. <coughs> but the, um, the thing that's amazing about the video is the guy's sound totally changes. And he really gets to understand, like, his own physicality about the kind of way in which... How you know his how big his body is, how tall he is, how high he sits, and the consequence of that with the snare drum, with the bass drum, with the ride cymbal, with the toms in relation to that and everything. And so a lot of that stuff is again about having that as a as a as a as a as a, as a way of playing. How do I connect with the instrument? Where am I playing from in the instrument? Where am I playing from in the hands with the sticks? You know, am I am I playing um, am I playing from the second joint in the forefinger, am I playing from the first joint like a French thing? Am I playing from the middle finger like a Gruber sort of thing? You know, all sorts of stuff. Do I play traditional grip? Am I using the thumb? Am I using the forefinger? Am I playing, you know, am I playing with a turn through the forearm and uh, through the forearm, sorry, and through the wrist? All these kind of things are like how you play the instrument. There's lots of different options, you know. Everybody does it differently. But checking in with somebody and kind of attaining this this kind of minimum standard of playing can be really valuable thing if you're really wanting to like get into some new areas on the instrument and improve and not just not just go to a teacher and and blast through a load of patterns and things in books and stuff you know it's not really that kind of thing it's a different way of learning because then you you know the content of what you practice is those things but it's all done against the backdrop of this thing of this is how I want to sound. This is how I fundamentally, I will, I will not accept anything that's below this level of quality, you know, within my playing. And so, yeah, just thought it'd be interesting to kind of share, it, just in relation to the other things that I've talked about, you know, um, with the foundation stuff. Because, um, again, if... If you're wanting to sort of improve, my advice is get some good advice. There's lots of great teachers out there. You know, if if there's teachers that you really want to connect with, but they're sort of not close to you, this, I think the Skype thing and all that sort of Adobe Connect or whatever it is, there's different ways of, you know, connecting to people via the medium of the internet and all that stuff. Um, and I think, you know... Just one lesson, sometimes every two months or three months can be good. I've had, uh, over the last couple of years, I don't do a lot of private teaching because of, of my job. Uh, it's, it's hard to find the time, to be honest with you. It's just something that I don't, ever, I don't advertise that I teach anywhere. Uh, but I, I have had, over the years, just a couple of people that have been periodically. And, uh, and they come to me for, the, for this reason. They, they don't come... Um, 
to sort of they don't bring a book and sort of like go through a book or something. They come because they want to they want to have more of a conceptual. Um, they want to have a they want to have a, a, con a conceptual conversation at first and understand the kind of process, um, and then I'll kind of help you know try and help them find some sort of uh, parameters to work within. And it's just that thing of like, how am I going to practice? You know, what am I going to do? And just that thing of understanding the difference between practicing and playing. Because just to conclude here, so talking about the playing thing, it's, you know, is trying to remember also when we play is that we play because we love playing. And... It can be really, really uh, difficult sometimes when you're like aspiring to raise your game, and uh, so you're you're setting the standard of what you want to attain to this to you know to somebody that you like the sound of or a thing from a book or something you've seen on you know YouTube or on a video or something you know whatever it is you've got this thing in your head and and i think the mistake a lot what a lot of people make is they don't set the standard of that in their practice they just set the standard of that as an aspiration and then they go on a gig and they play and they're sort of trying to you know find that thing while they're playing and it ultimately i think it ends up being quite a disappointing uh kind of circle of events you know i think you end up coming away from it feeling like you were trying to trying to do something you know and the word trying i mean you know when somebody's if somebody describes you as always oh, he's, he's so trying that young man you know whatever it means that they're kind of like annoying wearing kind of you know they they take a lot of maintenance to deal with their kind of personality or ego or whatever and you you don't want to be going into a musical situation and trying to do stuff. You want to go into a musical situation and just be doing stuff and and it be joyful, you know. Because always remember why you started in the first place. You know, I even re I remind myself that now. I've been playing a long time. I started when I was about 12 and I'm 49 now. I still remind myself from time to time why I got into playing the drums. You know, and that kind of joy of when I first played, which I, you know, talked about in one of the other podcasts, of that thing of knowing I always knew that I could play the drums, but that thing of of like actually playing the drums and the joyful thing of what that was, and it was just, you know, it was something that defined my life and defined who I am, you know, and set my path out, and um, and all that stuff. You know, can have a lot of baggage attached to it. It can have all kinds of things. You get older, and what you try to do all the time is you really try not to attach that baggage to it. You're actually trying to remember that joy, you know. But then, when you go and practice, is working on things methodically and working hard. You know. I'll conclude with a little story that. Um, a great workshop artist who came to uh, our college a few years ago, I won't say who it is, um, told a story about this thing. And he, he said to, it was a, in, in our, um, it was one of our bigger workshops. It was in, a, in our venue. There was a lot of students there, probably two or three, 400 students watching this workshop. It was, you know, and he was a great, great jazz musician. Um, and uh, he told this story of, of, 
teaching at um, I think Juilliard or somewhere big, you know, one of the really like Premier League music conservatoires in the world. And he was walking down a corridor, and uh, he heard somebody in the first room, and they were absolutely ripping up something on the piano, you know, ridiculous lines and everything, just like really going for it. And uh, his thought was, oh, they sound good. You know, that was it. Walked past the room, uh, walked towards the next room and could hear somebody just practising this, like, figure round and round and round, quite simple, but just round and round and round, going over it, just repeating it, repeating it, really trying to get it slowing it down just he was just outside the room listening and his first thought was you know they sound like they're working hard and that's the difference you know uh i think it's good to get on your instrument sometimes get the headphones on get some music that you love have a play along to it and just have that vibe going on then it's you know you've got to get out and play with people You've got to do the social thing. It's so important. Just doing the bedroom thing and not you know, playing with people is, you know, is there's no future in that. Well, not for me anyway. I mean, some people enjoy it, but I, I would definitely encourage people to play with people. It's a social thing. Music is a social thing, you know. Social music. Um, and then there's the thing of, you know, practicing of of like i call it the lonely journey you know and you don't want to make it too lonely because that's why you want to check in with people you want to have somebody you check in with and have a discussion and you know the thing i like about teaching at college with the with the, with the students is that they you know they're peers of each other and they you know that they they share uh their journey with each other so they don't feel it's a lonely journey you know i felt it's more of a lonely journey as i've got older uh, particularly as some good drumming friends of mine have moved away, you know, and I've had less of those conversations as I've got older. And I've had those conversations more and more as a, as a mentor, as a tutor with, with students than I've, than I've had with my own peers, you know. But very occasionally I get together with some good drum friends and have a chat and we just talk about what we're practising and where we're up to and all that kind of stuff. And it's nice to check in like that because, it, it, it you know, the... the the sort of journey of your own thing of trying to get your own technique together and your own sound together and your own styles and getting better at this, that and the other and whatever. You know, it, it you do do it alone ultimately. It's something that, you know, you, you don't you don't spend all that time with somebody else in the room practising with you. You do it on your own, you know. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I, I like that story because it, it, there's a lot of value in that thing of like, some people would, with their value systems, would be like, oh, the student in the first room burning it on the piano sounds amazing, and that's what I want. That's the vibe. That's what I want to be like. You know, oh, I don't want to be, not, I don't want to be doing what the, the second student's doing, the boring one in the other room who's playing that pattern round and round and round and just trying to get something together, you know. Whereas actually, um, the student in the second room, it's just that thing of understanding that they're working hard, they're working on something, they, they've got, They've got a, a minimum level of quality that they want to get out of that pattern that they're doing. 
they want to get a sound together or an articulation together or something. They want to play in a certain way, you know, whatever it is, they're, they're aspiring to something. And uh, so it's just under, when you're practicing, understanding what those two things are, I think they're both equally valuable. I think it's good to play. It's just good to play, you know, to be able to sort of just uh, have a thing. When, I, when, I, when I'm practicing, I, I have two or three different ways that I practice. Some of it is um, I've talked a little bit about in the metronome podcast and the other ones. When I'm learning something new, I tend to put the metronome all full beats of the bar and I'll be practicing something. It's normally a coordinational thing. I've been definitely been doing more coordinational practice in the last few years. Um, and then I do this thing where I, uh, I write pieces of music that have specific goals in mind. So there will be a specific tempo, specific style, specific time signature. And uh, those three elements are what I will practice. So and I will, so I'll write this piece of music um, and then I will record myself um, practicing along to it, doing all kinds of different things. Um, and of a lot of those, you know, those videos I have between 30 and 40, 50 takes, you know, because I just you know, set the video camera up and and play, uh, play along to these things on the computer, you know, and then just play again and again and again and again and again. And uh, and so that's like a really kind of useful way. And then the other way is I is I practice stuff where I'm reading. So I'll be doing stuff that's uh, mainly snare drum kind of exercises or whatever, uh, but there's there's stuff where I'm sort of flexing that muscle, so to speak. You know, the the, the visual that visual muscle, the process, visual processing muscle, and then now having that thing where you play, you've got to play things with a certain stick in, um, and all that stuff's great. But you know, getting out there as well and playing with people is there's no way you can practice that without doing it. You know, ironically, it's not practice, but it's, you know, you're putting something into practice, aren't you? You're out there in the world playing, and it's that's the experience thing. Those situations tell you so much about what's going to happen and how everything can feel awkward in a tight sense of time or feel or sound. Oh, I don't like this room. Oh, the groove doesn't feel quite right or whatever. And, you know, some of it might be the way you're framing the, the groove in your head, and some of it might just be that actually the bass player that you're playing with, you don't connect time-wise. There's all kinds of things, but you're not going to know that until you do it, are you? So um, anyway, yeah, I think that's kind of long enough, I think. I've just gone on a bit again, as usual. I was trying to do this. I was trying to make this 45 minutes, but it's not. It's two hours. It's an hour and five minutes, I think, something like that. So anyway, great. Thanks for listening. Hope you got something out of that. Um, no real playing today. Um, what's on the horizon uh, podcast wise um, not sure actually what the next one is I do want to do a um, a podcast about kind of this performance um, not performance well performance anxiety in one respect or just kind of performance kind of what we think about when we perform and what different you know different experiences I've had or people or musicians that I've known and sort of stories they've told me about how you know they've sort of um, felt when they've been performing and about what i've learned from playing with different artists that never suffer from this kind of thing they because and a lot of it's about what we focus on and again it's the same thing like practicing you know and playing and um some of it's about ego 
some of it's about expectation, isn't it? You know, some of it's about being kind of worrying about what people think about you, thinking, am I good enough? Some of it's about communication. Am I communicating with the people around me? Or am I sort of feeling a little bit like, you know, isolated? All that kind of stuff. Some, some Maybe some tips and advice that might help you, um, you know, if you're feeling a little bit like that, especially when you're playing with new people. I, I play with new people a lot still, you know. Um, I get into these situations because I get asked to do things that are not projects. You know, I get asked to play with uh, musicians from uh, you know other countries and things that come over here, and they want a rhythm section player that's kind of you know locally known and and you know can do a good job and all that kind of stuff. And then so I end up playing a lot of the time in bands with people I don't know, and you know you 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 that uh, those situations you learn how to um, communicate with people so that, you know, that you're doing a good job of what you're doing and that, they're, you know, they're happy with what you're doing. But it's not a thing of saying, does it sound all right? Does it sound okay? Are you sound, am I in time? Oh, is it start, am I swinging? And all that. It's nothing to do with that stuff. It's, it's much more about just normal human things, about how you are as a person and that, that kind of connecting with people, you know, and uh, talking about the music. You know, having a having a passion for the music, and uh, or just having a passion for other things, you know. So yeah, that's probably going to be the next subject. Um, so yeah, anyway, but that'll be next week. So thank you for listening, and um, yeah, if you're listening to this, to this today or whatever, have a great weekend. And if not, have a great week, and uh, I'll see you soon. Bye for now.